Hello everyone, my name is Amber Johnson and welcome to the Public Health Me podcast. This podcast will explore a gamut of topics from COVID-19 and immunity to social determinants of health and health equity to mental health. The goal of this podcast is to answer the questions of those in the general public and also get people that are inquisitive about the field of public health excited about the topics that we have to discuss in the fields of public health and medicine alike. We are so delighted that you all are here to join us on this journey of the Public Health Me podcast. We would like to thank you so much for your support of this podcast, and we hope that you enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Public Health Me podcast. I am super excited today because we have an amazing guest. Dr. Wendy Goodall McDonald is here, also known as Dr. Every Woman. She is amazing, you all. And I'm so excited to be able to have this conversation with her during October, which is Breast Health Awareness Month. And we want to make sure that we are taking care of our breast health and we are screening for cancer and doing everything that we can, especially as minority women, to ensure that our health is up to par. So I'm super excited to have you, Dr. Wendy. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So Dr. Wendy, just to introduce her a bit, she is a board certified obstetrician gynecologist and a published author. She's known in the media as Dr. Every Woman, as I previously stated, and she shares evidence-based health information to educate the masses and inspire physicians through music, literature, in a fun and innovative way. Dr. Wendy is a graduate of Northwestern University, Feinberg School of Medicine, and practices full-time obstetrics and gynecology in downtown Chicago at Northwestern Prentice Women's Hospital. You can learn more about her at DrEveryWoman.com, and that's all one word, Dr. E-V-E-R-Y-W-O-M-A-N.com. That's it. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. And you're doing the good work out here. I love that you do this and kind of like, you know, share information, health information in a way that people can absorb it because that's the, that's the goal. That's why we do what we do on these interwebs. So I applaud you for that, Amber. Thank you so much. Dr. Wendy has been amazing. You all like I have been on Instagram with her for months, <laughs> not a year trying to get this plan. So she is a super busy woman and she is here to share some really good knowledge with you all today. So please thank her and follow her on Instagram and listen to her stories and watch her every Wednesday for Women Crush Wednesdays where she answers questions about gynecological health and all kinds of other things, women's health in general. So we really appreciate you. Thank you. I appreciate it. So we're going to jump into our topic today. Mm -hmm. Our overarching question is really, how can we as women ensure that our breast health is up to par, especially in communities of color? So as I previously mentioned, October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and the title of our episode is Breast Check Yourself. Like we want to make sure (laughs) that we are doing what we need to do to check our breasts and make sure that our health is up to par, especially as African-American women, we have a higher mortality rate of breast cancer because we think that we can put everything off and we're like, we don't have time for that. We'll get our mammogram in five years. Five years from now, you can be possibly dead or battling a cancer that could have easily been prevented or treated. So we want to make sure that we are doing what we need to do in those spaces. Absolutely. I cannot agree with you more. And here's the thing about breast health. And it's the thing that I hear every time I ask somebody if they do their whole, their own self breast exams. It's like, well, I don't know what I'm looking for. I don't know what I'm checking for. It's like the it's like the the statement that everybody knows, even though no one's ever said it to each other. But the thing that you should take away from if you take nothing else away from this this podcast or breast health awareness, breast cancer awareness month, it's knowing your own breast. It's knowing yourself. They call it breast self awareness. You can know any and everything you need to know about your own breast. And if something changes, then you'll say, wait a minute. You know, it's almost like looking at your own face in the mirror. You all of a sudden got this new pimple. You're like, hold up. You wasn't there before. You know what I mean? Same thing with our breasts that you don't have to know what sis's breast feels like, or, you know, this other person's breast feel like, but you should know what your breasts feel like. And if something were to change, be the first person to say, hold up now. Don't you be up in here causing trouble. You know what I mean? Like, that's what it's about. Absolutely. And I I feel like I am so guilty of not doing my own self-exams. I know that's so bad. No, it's not bad. It's not bad. 
because because I went to get my mammogram and my doc, the doc, because I send like so many of my patients to him and I went and got my first mammogram because I just turned 40. Woo Trying to look 30 though, you know, but it's cool. But he was like, you know, you doctors are like the worst. I'm like, you know, you right. Like he is not telling us no lies because the number of times that I myself have been like, sis, have you done your own self-breast exam while you telling sis to do this? Like I check myself periodically to be like, get it together, check them out. Cause you're, you're, you know, we're amongst company. <laughs> exactly. Some days I'm sitting back. I'm like, oh, I haven't done that in a long time. And you have to remind right. yourself constantly because we are the worst perpetrators. We're out here spreading health education and, you know, treating patients in your case. And we're not doing our due diligence. So exactly. hypocrites out here in these streets telling that people part. what to do when we can't do what we need to do. Get it together. Get it together. Absolutely. <laughs> So as we're talking about these breast self-exams, what age would you recommend that people start doing their own self-exams more frequently? Or should they just start, you know, when they are pre-pubescent or during puberty, what would you suggest? So puberty is probably the first time that a person could check their breasts to any significant degree. But honestly, I'm not out here telling 12 and 13 year olds to do breast self-exams. They could, no shade. But even if they were to find something, the likelihood of it being a cancer is like slim to none, right? Breast nodules, breast lumps, those can happen, cysts even in adolescence. The fact that the the risk of it being cancer is very low. And this is one of the arguments that some governing bodies when it comes to like public health recommendations this is one of the things they have against self-breast exams. It, the, the number of times that a person will check and find a lump in their breast and it be cancer is really low. And that there are significant more, significantly more people who will find a benign lump or cyst that will lead to further follow-up and lead to further imaging and potentially even emotional distress. And so they say, well, if statistically the chances of you finding a cancer are low, maybe you shouldn't do your own self-breast exams. Now we, as OBGYNs, do not subscribe to that that theology at all, but I bring it up in the setting of adolescence because in the setting of adolescence, I kind of do subscribe, subscribe to that theology. I'm like, you know, maybe hold off on checking them until you're maybe like 16, 17, 18, because then it's more just getting into the routine of doing what we should be doing as adult women. And, and if you do find something, it's good to know, but a 12 or 13 year old is going to probably be more stressed and cause more anxiety without a health need, if that makes any sense. But yes, I would say you know, and again, the, the guidelines, one could make a lot of different statements when it comes to just self-breast exams in general. But I think that most gynecologists would probably agree 17 is a good, decent, you know, time to start trying to check them once a month or at least every other month, not right before a period, because right before the menstrual cycle, breasts get tender, they can get more lumpy. But when the period is over, good time to check them and just see like, where are we? What's our new baseline? Is there anything in there that feels new or feels like it doesn't move well or feels, you know, like it's cancer. They, they talk about the frozen pea, right? So it's like pea-sized thing that doesn't move. It feels like it's stuck in there. That's the, the real, you know, kind of ominous thing that a person could feel. But more likely it could be something that feels like a marble that you can push around, move around. It's good to know that those are there. It's good to let your doctor or even your parent or your healthcare provider or whoever know about those and maybe even image them. But those are less scary from a danger standpoint than the whole frozen pee phenomenon. That's really good to know. A lot of us don't know that. We're sitting there checking for whatever. We're like, this feels weird. Something's not mm-hmm. right. But really, we we don't always know that, you know, our breasts are kind of lumpy by nature. Right. So they, you know, it's really determining what the feeling should be and what the exactly. shape should be in, in terms of like the overall, like, oh my gosh, what should I freak out about versus what should I not freak out about? Exactly, exactly. And then, you know, as African American women, especially as we age, our breasts can be statistically more likely to be more dense. So that dense means people say, what does that mean? It means that they're firm, more firm. It's a difference between a fatty tissue that you can just feel all the way through and and push around, you know, like almost like slime, you know, where you can kind of really push into it versus something that's a little bit more rigid where something could be deeper in there that you may not feel because you can't necessarily get all the way through it. And so we're more likely to have more dense breasts, which may increase our need to have involved imaging whenever the time comes for us to get breast imaging. But that also is just good for us to know as we're pressing around, okay, well, you know, I think I'm feeling everything or man, can I really feel all the way down to my ribs? Maybe I can't feel everything, but at least I know what things do feel like at baseline for myself. Like those are just good things to know about yourself. 
Yeah, that's a really good point. And I appreciate you for making that point because I think a lot of African-American women don't know about how our bodies change so differently compared to our white counterparts as Mm -hmm. we age. And then our mortality rate is higher because we're not, you know, checking for these things or because we're not educated enough to know about our own individual health, especially our gynecological health of things Mm -hmm. that really could just take us out of here, unfortunately. And we have to be very aware of, you know, the circumstances that are presented having cancers and having higher incidence of cancer. The thing about, you know, our white counterparts, they are statistically more likely to get breast cancer, but only by a little bit, only by a little bit. But we are like 40% more likely to die from it. Some of that we think has to do with the, some cancers being more aggressive and not being caught as early, which could be related to our imaging. But also some of us are getting cancer before the age of 40, before we would actually start mammograms. So again, finding, checking, I can't tell you how many people find their own lumps. And then we go and we like, oh, Johnny on the spot, let's go get this taken care of. Another thing that people should know about breast cancer, it's a scary thing. No question about it. Nobody wants it. But if you're gonna find it, catch it early, you know, catch it early because if you catch a stay zero or one breast cancer, which is like before it's spread anywhere where it's still very local, your survival rate is anywhere from 95 to 99%. Like it's really high. You know, there are certain cancers, it's almost like no matter how you catch it, it's gonna be bad. But this one, breast cancer, if we can catch it early, breast and colon, both are like that. If we can catch it early, we can beat it. So it's about finding it. Like for me, I I always say, I don't want breast cancer, but if I won't get it, let me find it. Let me catch it. You know what I mean? I don't want it, but I don't want to run from the diagnosis and then find out that I have something that's more advanced because either I didn't get my imaging or I got called back to get further imaging and I didn't want to go. I don't want to know. I don't want to know. No, you want to know. You want to know early. That way we can try to be on top of it. Yeah. That is a really good point. And I appreciate you making the point about colon cancer as well, because even though that's not what our topic is, that's something that really plagues African-Americans as well. And we also don't want to go get colonoscopies and, you know, we just feel like things are so invasive, but would you rather something be so invasive in your body that could kill you than a quick exam that's not going to take more than like an hour of your day? So I think exactly. Same is true for for cervical. And I'm not going to just keep going down the list of of cancers, but when it comes to things that you can catch, like I pray that I never, you know, encounter like pancreatic or ovarian cancer, them things don't want no parts of those, right? No parts because they're so hard to treat. They're so hard to, you know, live basically from, but you can catch cervical, colon, breast, usually from a mile away. If you're going to, if you're doing your routine screening. You can catch it well before it can kill you, basically, if we do a routine screening in most circumstances. Of course, everything has an exception. But in most circumstances, if we can stay on top of those screenings, you're not, that's not going to take you out. That's really good information to know, for sure. And I'm sure the audience appreciates knowing it. And so we kind of went over this before, but how would you effectively tell a patient or patients to really conduct their self-breast exam? How should they be doing it? Should they be laying down, standing up, looking at their breasts in the mirror, those kinds of things? So I'm going, let's go level, level one, two, and three, right? Level one is like, just do them. You know what I'm saying? Like, let's just do them. Let's start, let's start small. In the sense that I don't want to tell the person to do your self-breast exam. You have to do it three different ways and three different positions and look and do this. And then they don't do it because it's too involved. No, first of all, just check, just feel. Level two is, okay, you're going from the middle bone in your chest, the sternum, all the way out to the axilla, which is your armpit. Sternum to armpit. And then you're going from the clavicle, which is the bone at the top, like right under your neck that goes across the top of your chest, all the way down to your rib cage at the bottom. So it's like a whole box on both sides, whether or not your breast takes up all that space, big or small, all of that is breast tissue. So you want to feel either up and down or in a circular manner where you're going to get all of that tissue. You're going to feel it with hopefully the three, your first three fingers, your, your pointy finger, your middle finger, and your ring finger. And some people do circular movements, but you're just really pushing through and getting all the way down, hopefully to your rib cage throughout your breasts, even underneath your nipple on both sides. You can put one arm up and, you know, do that. Say you're doing your left breast exam. You're going to put your left arm up and you're going to use your right hand to do that like full thorough exam. That's level two, right? Level three is you stand in front of a mirror 
you know, you look at yourself, you turn to the side, you look at yourself, you turn back to the front of the mirror, you lean forward, you make sure that nothing is puckering or pulling in, you know, that everything is, is symmetric and not symmetric like the breasts are the same size because most people's breasts are not the same size, but more so there's not like tugging or a pulling that's new on either side because breast cancer can almost like suck in the tissue around it and create new dimpling that may not have been there before. So you want to look, you can do your exam standing up. You can also do them laying back, um, like flat on the bed. I usually check mine out in the shower. You up in there anyway, you might as well just feel around. You got some soap involved, makes it a little real easy. You know what I'm saying? So I'm, that's, you know, that's my way. But again, if that's how you do them, you're not, I'd rather you do that than not do anything at all because, you know, you didn't get in front of the mirror and do all the like, you know, yoga poses in order to look at your breasts. That's a good point. Because a lot of times you think that you have to do so much work, you have to be laying down, looking at them from different positions. And that's just not feasible, you know, especially for mm-hmm. people, working women that right. have five kids at home and they're trying to stop their kids from like, you know, throwing tantrums and fits and all kinds of things. And you're exactly. just trying to sit there and do your breast exam. Like, right. no. So maybe you get to do that, like, you know, level three exam. I'll just make those levels up, by the way. Don't be quoting me like, oh, there's a such thing as level three. But maybe you do that exam, you know, quarterly, right? That you really try to look and make sure you know everything is cool, but you really are checking them, feeling them every month, ideally. Great. That's a good point. Thank you so much. We have been hinting at it and kind of talking about it for the most part, why we should examine our own breasts and not wait for our annual exam. And you've made it very clear. Breast cancer is a big thing. You know, you want to catch it yep. early on. You don't you want to catch it early until it's like stage four and it's metastasized to, you know, your liver or your brain or wherever else it may go. I'm going to see you once a year, if that, right? Because some people, your exam gets delayed, insurance changes or whatever happens in life, right? Most people aren't running to the gynecologist, you know, as much as they should, but you know, a lot of people don't, but you see yourself every day, you know? So if you're going to be on top of this health thing, waiting on me ain't it as that's not to say that I'm not going to find stuff because I do catch breast cancer sometimes and I do catch new lumps sometimes and I will but a lot of people who find their own lumps will come see me I'll examine them too and have a very low threshold to send people for imaging because look I don't know I can feel but I don't know what that is let me just make sure so you will often need a physician in order to kind of follow up a new lump but I will I encourage everybody to stay on top of their breasts And if there is anything new, you know, you would know first. Now, one other point about that. So say, you know, you weren't really timing it. You happen to have a free Sunday and you said, let me just check my breasts. You forgot your period is coming next month or next week. Oh man, there is a lump. Okay. Bookmark that, put in your phone when you felt it, and then put yourself a reminder for say a week after your period, check that breast again. If the lump is still there. Okay. We need to follow that up. If it's not, Great. It was probably just some changes of the breast tissue leading up to the cycle. And that's okay. Cancer is not going to disappear, right? It's not going to all of a sudden be there and then not there anymore. So be reassured if something was there and then all of a sudden it's not. But say that same thing keeps coming back or it never went away is definitely worth following up. So a lot of people, they'll sit back and they're like, well, you know, it's changed and then maybe it came back and then changed. And sometimes we have to really chalk that up to hormones and other times it may be something more serious. So I think that's a really good point for people to understand that it can be cyclical in nature. Definitely, definitely. I mean, and it's just, it's just being aware of those things. And, you know, we talk a lot about, we probably will get to this, but it's just, it's on my mind. We, I did a, a book talk with somebody recently and in the audience, somebody asked like in medical school training, what's one thing that you wish we did more? And she, the person I was talking to brought up a good point. She said, I wish that we talked less about disease and more about prevention. Like, yes, I want to be able to treat disease. I want to be able to, you know, catch something and manage it. But how do we stop ourselves from getting there to begin with, you know? And so something like, you know, not, and COVID did did a number on on most of us, but alcohol, you know, decreasing the amount of alcohol that we're drinking. A person who drinks, now this is, this is annoying, this stat but I'm going to say it anyway, three drinks per week is 15% more likely to develop breast cancer than somebody who doesn't three drinks per week. I'm annoyed by that stat myself because I'm like, first of all, that ain't even every day. You know what I'm saying? Like, what is we talking about? You know, but it's good information to know. Cause it tells me, I don't really even need to be drinking a drink per day. I really could 
you know, maybe have one on the weekend if I'm really not having, you know, if, if things are going all right. Of course, the person who drinks more than two alcoholic drinks per day, two per day, has a significantly higher chance of developing cancer, breast cancer specifically, but I think even any cancer. So, you know, you really don't want to be drinking more than two drinks per day if you're drinking alcohol, but even three drinks per week is increasing your breast cancer risk. And it may be if you're somebody who has a significant family history or what have you, it's just some, it's information to know that we could probably stand to scale back alcohol and make sure that our diets are rich in fruits and vegetables. That doesn't mean that you have to be a vegetarian. It just means that you need to have a significant portion of your food that is a fruit or a vegetable. You know, that's not just a carb or just a, a something that's, that's protein. So, I mean, I can go on all day with that, but I just had to throw those out there because I feel like, you know, we want to catch things. Yes, we want to catch it before it becomes problematic, but we really don't even want to have it. You know what I mean? Exactly. And that's a really good point, especially in communities of color that are disadvantaged and that usually don't have supermarkets that are close to them with fresh fruits and vegetables. So they're eating, you know, high fat, high carb, you know, Mm -hmm. those kinds of nutrient dense diets instead of Mm -hmm. nutrient rich. And, you know, a lot of times you may see, of course, higher stress levels because people are working frontline jobs. They're, you know, living paycheck to paycheck and they're living in adverse, you know, situations and dealing with various traumas. So of course that stress and various other things and, you know, your overall lifestyle is going to contribute significantly to your risk of developing any, you know, comorbidity, let alone any type of cancer. So I think that it's important that we really look at those things and we learn how to prevent them before they even start, which of course, you know, it's my life's work and mission to do prevention so that when they don't have to go to the doctor about, you know, breast cancer, we've already talked to them about it. We've already educated them about what they need to know before they even get to the point of something being as scary as cancer. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, there are things that are that are going to increase our breast cancer risk that are out of our control, getting older or having an early period or late menopause or depending on the age that we have our kids or, you know, there's all of these things that don't that we don't have day to day control over. Right. Like that. It is what it is. When I got my first period is, you know, I'm not going to change that. I'm not going to change my genetic makeup. I'm not going to change my family history. It's good to know those things, good to know the family history, to know like maybe to be on heightened awareness with screening. We can't change that. But one thing that we hopefully can change, you know, and and of course, sometimes depending on the availability and circumstances, we still can't. But as much as we can be aware of is, you know, the fruits and veggies, the processed foods, avoiding and reducing the amount of, of ultra processed foods that we eat. I love Pringles. I really do. But what is a Pringle? Don't nobody know. You know what I mean? Like, we don't know what that is. We don't know what a Cheeto really is. And those are ultra processed foods that we need to be eating very little of. You know, if we can get a, a, a Clementine out instead of that, if we can eat an apple instead of that, it's going to behoove us. It's going to be better for us in our overall health, including our breast health. Yeah, that's a really good point. I'm glad that you brought up the whole Cheeto phenomenon. And you see a lot of young millennials or these uh, adolescents just eating hot Cheetos first thing in the morning. Mm-hmm. And they're continuing those habits into adulthood, the Slim Jims, the Big Mamas, all of those things that we do. And, you know, the Black community a lot of times, especially when we're growing up impoverished or people that are, you know, just disproportionately disadvantaged. These are a lot of things that continue on throughout generations. And we realize why later on our health is taking a turn for the worse because we weren't kind to our bodies, you know, when we were young, when we should have started off better habits. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And certain foods are more perishable, right? Like if I, I just bought some bananas and half them bad boys are already trying to turn and I'm like, I don't like no overripe banana, you know? So now I'm mad, you know, because I wasted my money, but I mean, I ate the ones I could eat, you know, but that's a lot more perishable than I had a patient recently who I was, she's pe- pregnant and I was like, okay, you eat some fruit. And she's like, yeah, I eat my fruit cups every day. And I said, hold up, wow, 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 back it up. I didn't say fruit cup. I said fruit, you know, because those two things are different. Like I understand that it's actual fruit in the cup, but there's also more sugar. There's also, you know, the extras that you really don't need a little less fiber. You know, it's one of those things that I think that we could be aware of and, and to the extent that we can control it or at least sprinkle in those dietary changes that will serve us well. 
Absolutely. Thank you so much for that. And, you know, we want to talk about more of the statistical information for our second topic about the incidence and the signs of breast cancers in biopic communities. So how common is it for women of color, especially black women, to be diagnosed with cancer or breast cancer rather? Breast cancer in particular, we are 12%. One in eight women, you know, will develop breast cancer. White women comes about 13%. Of, black, of breast cancers and black women is 12%. Asian Pacific Islanders, it's 11% and Hispanic women, it's 11% as well. Just slightly less likely to develop breast cancer, but again, 40% higher mortality rate mm-hmm. in black women. And again, that we think that comes from potentially later diagnosis, potentially more aggressive cancers. And so it's one of those you know, one of the other take-home points is if you go to get your breast imaging, first of all, get your breast imaging, get your mammogram starting at 40, unless you have a significant family history where we should be starting earlier. Yearly breast mammograms are reasonable. And I say reasonable because there are different bodies and guideline protocols that some say you can start at 45, some say you can start at 50, some say you can start at 40 and do them every other year. But ACOG still leaves room, which is the American College of Obsession and Gynecology, leaves room for yearly mammograms starting at age 40. And that's what I do, especially for my African-American women, because again, I'm looking for early diagnosis. You are, I don't want anybody to be lingering with breast cancer and not know about it. The earlier we can catch it, the better. And mammograms do not cause breast cancer. The radiation involved does not cause breast cancer. So it's not something that I think is going to put somebody in harm's way to do them yearly. So early exams, if you get the call back to get further diagnostic imaging or 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 ultrasound as well, statistically, the chances of that still, you know, those callbacks be resulting in cancer is very low, right? So I say that because sometimes people are afraid of the callback. Like if I get callback, does that mean I have cancer? No, I think it's like only, you know, one in five people or something like that who get callback for imaging that actually have a cancer. But again, you want to know if that one is you, you know, but the chances are it's not likely that it will be. The other thing that I like to tell people when it comes to getting their imaging is if you can stay consistent with the place that you go yearly, that's ideal. Because if they've already mapped out, okay, she has some calcifications here, which is like some like early signs sometimes of things, just breast aging, but sometimes signs of cancer. But the next year they're the same versus the next year they're more, the next year they're less. There is less time elapsed because what will happen is Say I go to location A this year, then I go to location B next year. And if they see something that is suspicious, they're going to want to get the last year's imaging to compare. Well, that's going to maybe take some days or maybe even some weeks, depending on how quickly medical records is going to turn things around or if they're going to send films to read, to review the whole images. Again, time is passing and even potentially wasting. So if you're able to have your your imaging at the same place every year that'd be great if you aren't and say this year I had imaging and they had me come back and they said everything was fine and next year I know I gotta go to somewhere somewhere new maybe I request last year's images in anticipation of my appointment you know again keep it going keep us moving so that we can we can know if things are the same or if they're different sooner Absolutely. Thank you so much for that. I think a lot of people will go to different places or go wherever, you know, they can go a lot of times and they don't realize that they can actually request their images ahead of time so that they can have a baseline to go off of instead of, you know, them saying your breast tissue is more dense. And, you know, that's something that's already been documented. So then you don't have that extra freak out moment of, oh my gosh, I need to be that one in five to be called back for additional testing. You know, you can alleviate some of that stress and anxiety by being very, very proactive in your own healthcare. Yes, absolutely. And then even when you get your imaging this year, you know, I love my phone because it keeps me right with my calendar, even though I still sometimes mess things up, but I will put in my calendar, you know, when I have my, my dental exam, okay, let me count forward six months, schedule your dental exam, you know, same can be true for your mammogram because it's time is weird, you know, like you mess around and it'll be a whole two years and it's like, oh, it was two years ago, for real. you know, like let's use our technology for our health as well, where we can say, okay, you'll be due here. Let me go ahead and set myself a reminder to schedule that appointment or even schedule it now for this time next year, if you can. Absolutely. And I just told someone that the other day, one of my older African-American like family members, they're like, I haven't had like a mammogram in years. I was like, ma'am, 
You Ma'am. need to go ASAP. Today. It's not one of those things to freak you out. It's one of those things that we have a higher mortality rate. And even though our incidence is not, you know, as high as our white counterparts, that mortality rate is what really gets us. We're thinking about what is going to take you out of here, you know, in a Mm -hmm. sense. And I said, you know, you have to, and I tried to educate her on, you know, the facts and kind of some of the statistics behind it, that we are like fighting a race that, you know, we may not be able to finish if we don't do what we're supposed to do, if we don't drink our water in between kind of thing, you know, which is, you know, getting your mammograms and doing your preventative things to make sure that you are staying healthy and that your lifespan can, you know, reach at least the life expectancy or beyond. Absolutely. Absolutely. I could not agree more, you know, and it's, it's this, oh, well, but I, you know, I'm not going to speak it. I'm better off not knowing, like, actually you're not, because if something's happening, it's going to happen whether or not you know about it. Like that you're knowing about it is not going to change its trajectory, you know, but if you know about it early, you could, you could change its trajectory, you know, um, that's the hope. That's the prayer, you know, is that you would be able to fix it if we can catch it. Absolutely. And I know we touched a little bit on this earlier, but I want to make sure that it's clear for the audience that, you know, not all breast lumps are cancerous, that there are some that are benign. And you talked about, you know, the frozen pea phenomenon for people to understand that, you know, maybe even those sometimes may potentially not not even be cancer. Yeah. So things that are usually not cancer or dangerous, that doesn't mean we don't follow it up, but things that we're usually not scared of. Pain. Pain is actually usually not scary. Pain in our minds is associated with danger because that's just what pain is. And that's what how human you know nature is. But a, bre- a painful breast, breast cancer typically does not hurt. Breast cancer typically does not hurt. That's why it's important to do your exams because otherwise you're not going to feel it usually. So pain is usually not a thing. The frozen pee is the one that we do usually get a little bit more nervous about, but again, it's not usually, it's not always cancer. So that's definitely something to follow up, but not necessarily feel like you've already had the diagnosis. This doc that I used to work with used to call the lumps like fibroadenomas, the ones that are not scary or dangerous, running mice, which I thought was awful because first of all, who wants mice in their breasts? You know what I'm saying? I'm like, why would you just decide to use, you know, running mice as your, but the reason why he said that is because you push them around, you can move it around. Those are lumps that are usually not dangerous to you. Fibroadenomas, usually it's like the ones that are like a marble under the skin and you can be like, you know, push it all around, but that's not scary from our standpoint. I still like to know that they're there because every so often there is something that you're like, oh, that's a a different type of tumor or something that does need to go. So I think it's all of these are things that I want to know about. I want to document. I want to make sure that we are following up with imaging ideally, but usually not cancer. That's really good to know. Absolutely. I think that a lot of people really always assume that as soon as you find something, it has to be cancer. And then you have the whole prayer circle praying for you at the church, making sure that, you know, we lay hands on you because people are freaking out about things. And sometimes, you know, our anxiety about the situation can be far worse than the actual diagnosis. Sometimes it could be just cystic breast tissue or something of that nature. Yeah, like, our, you know, you could get a new mole or you could get a little fatty, you know, tumor or even a skin tag on your skin. And externally, if we see those, you say, oh, that's just this. That's just that. Most of the time, those are nothing, right? I mean, with the occasional melanoma or whatever. Most of the time, those new things that develop on our external that we can see, we're not so worried about. But when there's something new internally, then we kind of can sometimes have the tendency to be a little bit more, have a little bit higher anxiety. But we should remember that just like the outside can develop new stuff, the inside can develop new stuff. Well, is it dangerous to you? That's the question, right? Because, you know, I could get any number of like, I mean, a person can get a CT scan, a new nodule is noted on their liver, but it's of insignificance, you know, it's no concern there. It's just there, you know, the same thing can happen in our breasts. But again, as long as it's not dangerous, then we're okay. But that's where the follow-up comes into play to make sure it's not dangerous. Absolutely. And really thinking about the whole idea of like detecting breast cancer, we want to talk about when women should receive their first mammogram. And if you're at an increased risk, like say, for instance, you know, your grandmother died from breast cancer. Should you receive a mammogram sooner than the recommended age? So any person with breasts can 
and I say person with breasts because not everybody considers themselves a woman, right? Let's let's be let's be inclusive in this thing. Any person with a chest that has fatty tissue, because not everybody even considers their their chest breasts, can have a mammogram starting at age 40 and they can have them yearly. Some can't, you know, can decide to do them at age 45 or 50. But again, the guidelines allow for starting at age 40 and to do them yearly. And most gynecologists are going to support that as a regimen. Now, when does a person need to do them earlier? Well, for sure, if they feel anything or if there's any concern for, you know, following up lumps or bumps. But some people can have a baseline like mammogram at, 40, at 35. A baseline mammogram, a lot of insurances will, well, many insurances will actually cover, and you can call your own insurance company and see a baseline mammogram at 35, even without a significant family history. Nothing wrong with just looking at them if you're able, you know, and just make sure there's nothing of concern in there if you're able, and if there's, especially if you have a family history. Now, let's talk about significant family history. You have a first or second degree relative, especially a first degree relative, meaning like mother, sister, you know, who was diagnosed with breast cancer at all, but especially under the age of 50. That is going to increase your risk of having a genetic connection, like a BRCA, BRCA gene mutation that could significantly increase your risk for developing breast or ovarian cancer, breast or ovarian cancer. And especially if you have two family members, they don't even have to both be under the age of of 50. Two family members, first or second degree relatives. So now we're talking about mom, sister, grandmother, aunts, although aunt, you know, I think aunt is still considered second degree. Two of those is also gonna flag you as somebody who could have this genetic mutation. But one that's under the age of 50, if I'm not mistaken, is definitely something that's notable. And that could prompt you if you're again, have access to have a genetics consultation, maybe even some blood testing to see if you may carry this gene. But say you don't have that, or you don't have access to that, or even if you don't have the gene, I would definitely want somebody who has a family history to start their breast imaging, ideally at age 35, if you have a, that gene mutation, they may want you, they as in the genetics geneticist may want you to start having imaging at age 30 or maybe even 25. I mean, breast cancer can develop in a person's 20s, especially if there's a significant family history or genetic mutation. So the age at which a person can start really does depend on their personal and family history and behaviors. Smokers are going to be significantly higher risk of developing breast cancer, people who drink more alcohol, you know, those types of things. But if you don't have any of those risk factors, I would definitely start at 40. Or if you feel there's any concern or you're just concerned, see if you can start them at 35. And then that baseline at 35, I get some of those back and they'll say, normal screening mammogram, okay to resume at 40. So they don't necessarily mean that you're going to start having mammograms at, at 35, but occasionally you'll see somebody who the imaging says, you know what, she can start doing her yearlies now because she does have some microcalcifications or she does have you know, some findings here that we wouldn't mind following up at a more frequent basis. Thank you so much for that. That's a really good point. I remember back when Angelina Jolie was tested for the BRCA gene and she ended up doing a double mastectomy because of the simple fact that she possessed it. And her mother, I believe, died from ovarian cancer. So it's definitely one of those things that people should be on the lookout for, especially, I think that it, it affects more of the Jewish community, if I'm not mistaken, the BRCA genes. Yeah, just making sure that we are aware of like, you know, our genetic makeup and sometimes that our ethnicity plays a role in some of these things. And the thing about us as African-Americans, right? You know, I don't need to tell you that the, the, the genetic mixing, the blood mixing, you know, is has been extensive in our communities. You know, you think of something like sickle cell trait as being solely for African-Americans or Africans. But and, and even something like cystic fibrosis being more in the Jew- Jewish population. But I know a lot of African-American people who have cystic fibrosis trait, you know, which which is one of those things that just tells you that throughout the generations of, you know, the, the enslaved, you know, Africans to now, there has been enough intermixing of blood that a BRCA could be present in anybody, you know? And so we as African-Americans, if we have a significant family history, and this is where also... Knowing our family history is important. If you know grandma died of cancer, well, maybe ask a couple more questions. What kind of cancer? Okay, stomach cancer. Stomach cancer is one of those things that I never know what that is. And I'm, I try to probe because it's like, was it stomach of the stomach or was it colon or was it ovarian or was it uterine? Because all of those things are in our abdomen, which could be considered the stomach, right? So, you know, it's one of those things where we need to try to probe our family members with the understanding and with the basis of, hey, 
auntie or grandma, if I know that this has happened with you or with your sister or with your mom, I'm able to, might, may be able to stop it from happening to me, right? It's not about being nosy. It's not about being in people's business. It's not about, you know, it's about trying to see over the horizon what's coming for me or what could be coming for me so that I can stop it if it happened to one of my family members. Absolutely. And while you were talking, I just thought to myself about a question that, you know, a lot of young girls will ask because a lot of, you know, of course, millennials are on birth control pills Mm -hmm. and a lot of them get, you know, caught up with this misnomer of does birth control actually cause breast cancer or does it decrease my risk of breast cancer and other, you know, gynecological cancers? Ooh, that's a good one, Amber. That's a good one. Like I stood up straight to talk about that. Okay. So um, the thing about birth control, hormonal birth control, estrogen, progestin, birth control, is that we do know that there is a slight increased risk of breast cancer with hormonal estrogen progestin containing birth control, a slight increase. I think it's like seven and 10,000 or something. I think that's the stat, don't quote me on that, but it's really a low increase risk in breast cancer. It's something to know and something to be aware of, but not something, it's not significant enough for us to not have people on birth control for that reason, because birth control prevents pregnancy and pregnancy comes with its own set of a whole lot of risks, not only having a baby, but clot, blood clot risks, a whole lot of things that are like a lot, a lot higher in pregnancy than they are, you know, outside of pregnancy, right? So preventing pregnancy reduces a lot of risks that, that are not negated by that slight increase in breast cancer risk. But here's the other thing, the other side to that, being on hormonal birth control, estrogen, progestin birth control for at least five years decreases your risk of ovarian, colon, and uterine cancer. Ovarian, colon, and uterine cancer risk go down significantly being on birth control for long periods of time. And to the point where if somebody has BRCA, the BRCA gene, there are doctors who will put people on birth control to reduce that ovarian cancer risk until they get to the point where they're deciding to, you know, either have a baby or be done with childbearing. And then at that point, take off the breast or remove the ovaries potentially, depending on the circumstance. That's not always what they do. But, but so I say that to say, even a person who has an increased risk for breast cancer can still be put on hormonal birth control to reduce those other cancer risks, because that's actually really significant, the amount that those other cancer risks are reduced until they do whatever the cancer reduction, you know, effort is for the breast cancer. So it's not high enough where I want people to be afraid of birth control in the breast cancer space, but still reason to do exams. Now being on hormone replacement therapy for long-term, so talking about like somebody who's menopausal who decides to be on estrogen because they're having hot flashes or night sweats, that long-term use can increase a person's risk for breast cancer. But again, screening and all of that is important. And we try to take people off of hormone replacement therapy when they don't need it anymore, right? So you don't want somebody to be on hormone replacement therapy until they die, until they're 90 or something. You want them to be on it for the time of their symptomatic menopause and then hopefully scale back or off of it, or at least off of anything that's systemic that's going through their whole body. Thank you so much for that. Cause I know a lot of people that get kind of confused or they're caught up by this like misnomer that this is something that causes cancer. And then now people are freaking out. Like I can't take birth control. And then you have all kinds of other things happening with people having, you know, unplanned pregnancies. Unplanned pregnancies. And again, it's just like that in and of itself is a thing, but also, you know, like blood clot risk is also something that comes up a lot with birth control. You know, yes, if you have a clotting disorder, you should not be on certain types of birth control, but your risk of developing a blood clot in pregnancy is like 10 times, maybe even 15 times higher than it is on birth control, you know? So yes, it's like your, your blood clot risk is higher on birth control than not on anything, but if pregnancy is the alternative, then you're actually reducing that chance of developing a blood clot or developing other complications that can be related to to pregnancy. So it's just, it's everything we do has to come with risks and benefits. It has to be a conversation. I'm not somebody who thinks that everybody should be on birth control just to reduce those cancer risks that I mentioned. But I think that it's a reasonable thing to know, to give us some security that this is not all bad, quote unquote, bad. This is, this has benefits. Birth control has benefits as long as we're watching out for those signs and symptoms of breast cancer, we should be okay. Absolutely. That's a really good point. 
because we're always like, I don't know if I should take this. I don't want to put this in my body. But then we realize there's so many other things that we put in our bodies that do far greater harm than Man. birth control that, you know, can really be doing us some justice, especially for people that, you know, have gynecological conditions like endometriosis, those kinds of things going on. So exactly. As we round out the whole conversation, I really want to talk about how we feel comfortable with talking to our physicians about our breast health. I know a lot of times people get a little bit nervous, especially in the Black community. We're like, no, everything's fine. We're going to, you know, pretend like nothing's wrong. But in reality, we have to have comfortable conversations and be very comfortable with who we're talking to about our breast health and about our overall gynecological health. I think that, you know, one of the tips that I could have for that is trying to find a healthcare provider who listens to you. You know, one of my really good friends who's actually a breast cancer survivor, she, her mantra, she always says, she says that your doctor works for you. You know, you are the client essentially, and your doctor works for you. So if you, you know, have a question and they don't take the time to answer it, or at least give you the resources to answer it or follow up with you to make sure that you understand, you know, is say you have a whole conversation, but you don't get it. You want to schedule another appointment and they can't do that or whatever. Like that's a problem. You, we should not accept less than comprehensive care, ideally from our healthcare providers. Now we're a team, right? So I'm not saying that where you need to be barking up at your doctor, like you need to do this and you need to, you work for me because no human, (laughs) no human works well under that circumstance, right? Or under those conditions. But I think that we should almost expect more if we can from our healthcare providers. And she said that, she said that for years and I never really, it didn't hit me until recently because I'm like, well, you know, of course, like I, I, it is my role to answer your questions, but I think that that's how I treat my patients I'm starting to realize it's not how every doctor treats their patients, right? And that's not anything about me. I'm not saying that because of of any pedestal as much as it should be the norm. That should be the norm that you get your questions answered, that you understand your health. And, And some of that comes on the onus of ourselves. We have to also maybe jot things down, bring some notes to the doctor. Hey, I've been having this pain for how long? It helps us as healthcare providers to understand the full scope of what you're going through. It's been a while. What's a while? You know, I'll, I'll tell a person, okay, well, it's been a while. Was it, was it 2020? Okay. Maybe not that long. You know what I mean? So I'm trying to like get landmarks in my head of how long this has been happening, but it would help if you brought that information with you, because then we can start to say, okay, well, what could have happened around this time? You know, I've had patients and I tell, oh man, I just had changed this medication. And they never realized that those two could have been connected. The more we talk about it, or the more we kind of really get into the nitty gritty. So jotting down, you know, having a little notepad, whether it's physical writing up, or again, our phones are, are, are at least my livelihood. Maybe I'm the only one out here, but I keep notes in my phone, you know, or on my calendar about when things are happening. There's apps for your cycle where you can jot in symptoms. And I think all of that can be helpful when it comes to your breast health, when it comes to your overall health, that you can not only feel like you can talk to your doc or your your healthcare provider, but also that you can expect that they should be able to answer those questions for you, or at least point you in the right direction, at least try to, you know, and then my rule of thumb as a healthcare provider, say a person brings to me a, a concern and I tell them, you know, I think it's okay. Because I do genuinely think whatever it is, it, not whatever it is, but if, if I truly think whatever they're telling me is okay, right? That it's not dangerous to them, that they're safe. I will try to reassure them. If they come back to me again, the second time somebody comes to me with the same concern, I'm doing more tests. It's like my own rule. I'm doing more tests because clearly whatever I said, it didn't resolve or it didn't, it's still making them uneasy or uncomfortable. So now I'm advocating for them by saying, okay, fine, let's get some imaging, you know, or let's do some more, let's do some blood tests or let's go see this specialist. So maybe we can take that again on ourselves. If I keep bringing the same thing to my doctor or my healthcare provider and they keep brushing me off and I keep saying it and they keep brushing me off. How many times have you heard the story? I went to five doctors before. I've been talking about this for years before. You, now we need to level it up because I'm still uneasy. This is still, and then if I do the testing and everything is fine, well, now we both know (laughs) that everything is fine because we did the testing. You see what I'm saying? So like there's, there's a level of, I speak up for myself. There's a level of your doctor does need to advocate for you, you know, and we need to work together. 
That's a really good point. And like I, in recent years, just realizing that a lot of times we don't advocate enough for ourselves and sometimes having positions that are not advocates for you, you have to do your due diligence and, you know, change out your doctor. If you don't feel comfortable, write down notes and, you know, make sure that you are documenting things for yourself so that if you go to another doctor, then you don't have to start the whole process over. I know, you know, with people I have Kaiser, so everything is in my electronic health record. So they can see what was talked about, the notes and various other things. But not everyone has that luxury where they can, you know, pull up notes from when you saw someone at Northwestern versus when you saw someone at Sydney Hospital in D.C. So it just I think it's very important that we pull out our notepad, jot things down and even something so easy as just putting notes in your phone. I do it. I feel like, you know, an older woman sometimes when I do it, but I'm like, I'm going to forget this. Let me put this in my notes because I know I have a telephone appointment coming up or I know I have like an in-person visit coming up. Or even if I don't know when my cycle is going to start, a lot of times I forget what time it's going to start. So I go into my Clue app, I pull that up and I say, I was fertile on this day or whatever need be. So then they can have a better idea of if my health is, you know, correctly in order with what, what it's supposed to be in line with. And if you have a mammogram or you have an ultrasound or whatever, and you know, hey, I'm moving or my job is changing, like, can I get a copy? Can you print a copy for me? Just for me. You know, I don't need my whole record. I don't need all my pet, my medical record. Maybe you do. But I'm saying it could be easier sometimes in the office to be like, can you just print that for me? Throw it in a file. Keep one file of like my imaging or my pat, my last pap or my last, pap, you know, just so that you can keep your own because sometimes going back and finding it or finding out who did it last, it's harder. But if you're there in the office on the spot, and if you can ask for that and keep it with you, it's like the, one of the best things you could do for yourself. I think that's a really good point. And I appreciate the fact that you were just so candid about this conversation and what people need to really be doing, because a lot of times we're not educated enough to know what we should or should not be doing. Then we're freaking out and then we're freaking everyone else out around us. And we can just calm down a bit about some of the things that are either, you know, benign or things that may be cancers or things that maybe, you know, potentially worrisome for the future. So Absolutely. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Well, I, like I said, thank you for having me. I think this has been great. I really appreciate what you do because I think it's really important. Thank you so much. I, I'm just a human being. I tell people that all the time. I just do what I do. You know, I do the Lord's work and it's not about me. It's about the people. So if Absolutely. you always keep in line with it being about the people that you're serving and that it no longer becomes a selfish act, then I think that's when we really do great work, especially for these communities that need the help. Absolutely. So, Thank you all so much for listening to this episode with Dr. Wendy. We are so appreciative of her time and her efforts and everything that she does. Please check her out on Instagram at Dr. Every Woman. She's amazing. And please make sure that you all are doing your self exams and that you all are advocating for yourselves and your breast health. And if you all have questions, make sure that you're asking your physician and making sure that you're asking a knowledgeable provider about your symptoms and things that you're concerned about so that they can assuage your concerns. So you will please take care, stay safe and stay well and do everything that you need to do to keep yourselves healthy. Thank you all so much for joining us on the Public Health Me podcast.